Let me pray and we'll get started. Lord God, I pray that uh, since we're talking about your word, that your word would be clear tonight, that what you've given uh, me to share tonight will be helpful and instructive and will make some measure of application uh, easier for our people. Uh, I just pray that this would be something that people would truly fall in love with, that is reading your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to read this essay to you uh, to start us tonight. I know that Trey, by the way, you were supposed to introduce me tonight, Trey. That was my bad, sorry. So Trey did a great job last night lining out what the Bible is, and then I want to talk a little bit more about maybe how to read it uh, to make some sense out of it. But I want to start with this essay that somebody in our house, my house, the Switzer house wrote, and it wasn't Jackie, so that'll give you an idea who wrote this essay. But I just want to read this essay to you, okay? It's titled, The Christian's Authoritative Text. The Bible is a book, book in quotes, the Bible is a book containing 66 books, but the books are not in true chronological or narrative order, which makes it difficult at times to understand flow. Also, each book is written by a different author, though some authors have written more than one book. Of the 66 biblical books, there are approximately 40 different writers who wrote the books over the course of about 1,500 years on three different continents. But also, the authors who wrote the books were guided in their writing by the Holy Spirit, one of the three members of the Trinity. In other words, the books are God's words, not the human author's words. Furthermore, each of the 66 books is written in a different literary genre. For instance, some books are poetry, some are songs, some are epistles, which is a form of an ancient letter. Four of the books are a a sort of ancient Greek biography known as a gospel. Some of the books are history, some are legal treatises, some are apocalyptic, and some are just straight wisdom literature. There is metaphor and simile and antithesis and metonymy and personification and symbolism and hyperbole and synecdoche and irony and alliteration and there are rhetorical questions all embedded in the 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years on three different continents. Each book has chapters and verses, but the chapters and verses were not part of the original text of the books as written by the human authors as guided by the Holy Spirit, but were added by other human editors and scribes hundreds of years after the books were first written. Of the 66 books that are in the Bible, there were several other books that were at one time in contention, but were ultimately left out of the final 66 books. Books such as The Shepherd of Hermesh, The Acts of Paul and Thecla, Bell and the Dragon, and all of the Maccabees books. But some of those books are included in the Catholic Bible, which has more books than the Protestant Bible that we use. The Catholic Bible has 73 books. When someone asks about the faith that a Christian has as a result of the Bible, 
which we as Christians often refer to as the word of God, we tell them that the ultimate arc of the story of the Bible is that because we are bad, there was a man who was really God in the flesh, who was crucified for our badness, but then he was raised from the dead and is alive now, though we cannot see him, but someday he will return again to make everything all right. Lastly, though this is certainly not the end of the confusion or the discussion, consider this. We will often tell a person who is not raised in the church, has no idea who or what Jesus is, and has no grasp of history or context for the Bible, but wants to know more, we will tell them, read the Gospel of John. Okay. Here's the first verse of that book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, for the new Bible reader, that should clear everything right up. See, if this person has no idea or understanding of context, history, or rhetoric, what in the wide world of sports are they to make of this sentence? In order to understand this, quote, plain and simple sentence, unquote, from the book of John, which is a gospel literary genre, they need to have a working knowledge of the creation narrative in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, which is the first Old Testament book in the Bible. They need an understanding of the first century Greek notion of the word, word, which is translated logos, and it would help if they were somewhat familiar with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, something that is not systematically outlined in any of the Bible's 66 books, but is rather just one of the many constructs of the overarching and comprehensive theme of the Bible. And this, this is what faithful Christians believe is the single and only authoritative text for life. Can we recognize why this might be challenging for some people to grasp? That's it. That's all I got for tonight. Let's pray. And we'll, No, I'm kidding. All right. So Trey outlined some things last week which were helpful, and now I'm going to kind of jump in. And, and a lot of this is just going to seem kind of random and sort of like I'm shooting a shotgun, but all of it put together, I think, is going to be very helpful. So the first challenge with the Bible that I see with the way we read today is that most people just want to read for information. They want to read so that they can say they finished reading it, whatever it is. And part of the reason is because we're just bombarded with messages all day long, emails, text messages, phone calls, advertisements. We have things coming at us so fast. And, and our brains are being rewired by the digital communication rev revolution. And so to slow down and actually read something, not for information, but for formation, that is foreign to us. We just don't know how to do that anymore. It's rare that you run into anybody anymore, it seems, who enjoys just sitting with a good book of poetry because you have to read poetry slow in order to truly enjoy it and understand it. And the same is true for the Bible. As you read the Bible, it's not just trying to gather information, but you're trying to figure out what it is that God, the work that God is doing in your heart, in your mind, as you read it. And he's not going to be able to do that if you're going really, really fast. So you need to wrestle. And also, some of the things that you're going to read in there, you're not going to agree with and you're not going to like. But it's God's word, so you, 
You have to assume that it's true, and you have to assume that it's something that is in your best interest, otherwise he wouldn't communicate it to you. Even some of the most difficult things to understand, like if you've ever read through the book of Judges, and you look at the violence in the book of Judges, and some of it just seems absolutely nonsensical. Why would God allow or cause any of this to happen? But it's in there for a reason. And we need to learn how to wrestle with these things, not just read it informationally, not just read it to say we finished it, not just to read it to say that you don't agree with it, but rather to wrestle with it, to to take that deep dive into, all right, what's really going on here? What is the text behind the text? We're reading the text. Have you ever slowed down enough to start thinking about what is the text behind the text? That's when you start to read formationally. You start to understand what's going on behind the text that you're reading. I would argue that reading one verse and meditating on that one verse for the rest of the day is better than reading five chapters in the Bible and ultimately not remembering any of it in the end. You're better off to just read one verse and meditate on that all day long. Trey said that in... By the way, isn't it interesting that the last sermon we had as a corporate gathering here was Trey's? Isn't that right? Is that true? Yeah. So you're the reason we're in this crisis right now. Sorry. Anyway, um, Trey said this uh, in, his, in his sermon. Uh, he, he said, look, one of the things that we need to do is, is, is read the Bible and learn one thing and then just think about it the rest of the day. That's what it means to be formed. That's what it means to read formationally. You don't always read that way. You don't always just read one verse. But there are times when that's helpful, when that's beneficial to do that. One of the things you should do when you're reading, (coughs) excuse me, a passage or or a chapter or even just a section of the Bible is to look for repeating words. If there's a word that's being repeated over and over, Chances are that's an important word, that's an important theme, that's something that the author, who is guided by the Holy Spirit, wants the reader to think about, to dive into, to understand, to ponder, to discuss with other people. So look for repeating words, look for themes that recur as you're reading as well. Again, I will use uh, Trey's sermon as an example. One of the things he talked about in his sermon was Psalm 19, which is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the longest psalm. Uh, If you're reading a chapter a day, that's always the chapter that's hardest to get through. It takes maybe 20 minutes to read Psalm 119. But it's about one thing over and over and over. The author of the psalm says it differently every time, uses different words, but it's about one thing. It's about the beauty of God's law of God's word, of God's statutes. See, I'm already starting to use all the different words that are used in the psalm. The psalm uses the words statutes, law, teaching, testimonies, precepts, commands, rules, word, and way. All of those are talking about what God had to say to his people, what God has to say to his people. That's what it's about. And it's about the beauty of that. But But Trey also pointed out two other themes that go along with that. Number one, that the author of this psalm longs for and desires God's word. 
It's not just that he's reading it. It's not just that he's thinking about God's word. It's not just that he's getting God's word information into his brain. He desires it. He loves it. He's passionate about it. He wants to sit with it. He wants to meditate on it. And then Trey also pointed out how intimate the psalm is too. That the language used is I and you, the, the, the disciple and God. That that's, those are three major themes that you get from just one psalm. I know it's a long psalm, but you get it from just one psalm. And, and you can do that throughout the Bible with these things, but you gotta slow down. You gotta be patient. You gotta be willing to sit with it. And by the way, in the midst of this pandemic, maybe we have time to slow down and do some of this kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, again, sort of random, but it goes along with this idea of reading formationally rather than informationally. I, I often have people ask me questions that start this way. Does the Bible really say dot, dot, dot? Does the Bible really teach dot, dot, dot? Or they'll start a question or, or a statement like this, they'll say, like, for instance, in Romans chapter 13, when Paul says that we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities, boom, but what if we live in Nazi Germany? Okay, Schrader used to answer that question like this, but you're not. You're trying to distract from the work that God is trying to do in your life by reading his word. Do you see what happens? Now, when, when I hear somebody say this, for me, does the Bible really say this, for instance, about marriage? Does the Bible really say that? My answer to the person is almost always the same. You know that's what it says. You know that's what it says. You're not really asking me if the Bible really says that. You know that the Bible really says that. What you're really asking me, here you go, what's the text behind the text? Here's the text behind that question. What you're really asking me, is there any way around it? Are there any exceptions? Is it okay if I do it differently than what God's word is saying? That's the question that's being answered. And this has to do with reading formationally. You're not reading the Bible so that God can form you when you're doing that. You're reading the Bible to try to reform God. How many people right now today think that God needs reformation? That God needs to be um, remodeled, that God needs to be told what we think is right now and he needs to get up to speed with us. That's a problem. You're not reading formationally at that point. You need to wrestle with this stuff. I know there's stuff in the Bible. I, I read stuff in the Bible all the time and I think, nah, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Here's the problem. I'm not God. And it's probably best that it wasn't done that way. Now, Trey talked a lot about, uh, last week, about genres, which was really helpful, and I mentioned that in that little essay that I read as well. Um, also of great importance is context. So here's what we say in the communication discipline when it comes to interpretation of the meaning of a communicative message. Some of you probably know a little bit about real estate. What are the three most important rules in real estate? 
Thank you, Trey. Location, location, location. What are the three most important rules about understanding the Bible? Context, context, context. You're going to have trouble understanding what's going on if you don't understand the context. And understanding the context is not that difficult. Okay? Here's the first recommendation, if you haven't already done this. Here's the first recommendation. You need a study Bible. Don't just have a Bible. Bibles are great, but a study Bible really helps. I have my formal Sunday preaching Bible right here. It's just a Bible with no notes or anything. There are maps in the back, though. I wouldn't have bought it if there weren't maps. Um, but I also have this wonderful study Bible, and a lot, I have a lot of study Bibles. This, these study Bibles are absolutely magnificent. They have all kinds of essays in here that'll help you understand what's the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. What are the historical backgrounds for the Old Testament? What are the historical backgrounds for the New Testament? And they're, they're written by scholars, but they're not written in a scholarly way. They're written so that anybody can understand them. But then really the best part, and probably the most important part of what goes on in these study Bibles, is that before you get to a particular book in the Bible, let's, let's pick, um, first, all right, here you go. After the Gospels in the New Testament on my ESV study Bible, after we're done with the gospel, uh, I'm sorry, after we're done with Acts, actually, before we get into the epistles, which are the New Testament letters, there's an essay that the editors wrote about how to read the epistles, because you're reading a different and new literary genre at that point. Well, I read letters all the time. I read emails all the time. No, these were different. They wrote them differently. They wrote them in many ways more formulaically than we, we did. So there's this nice short essay that'll help you to read the, uh, read the epistles ease, more easily and understand them. And then the first epistle, Romans. Well, what does that mean, that it's Romans? See, I remember going to my first Bible studies when I first became a Christian. First became a Christian, and I was at a church, great church, God saved me there, uh, attended there for eight years, loved it. But those Bible studies drove me a little bit crazy at first because I would go into these Bible studies and the teacher who's trying hard and is doing the best that he can, but unfortunately is under the assumption that everybody in the room grew up with the Bible and knew the Bible and I didn't. I didn't know anything about the Bible when I became a Christian. And I distinctly remember one day saying, the teacher saying, all right, Turn, to, uh, turn in the Bible to Ephesians. And I'm like, what is, a, what is that? It sounds like a skin disease. What are we, I don't understand what we're going to read. I, literally, I didn't know, you know, uh, there's a table of contents. Yeah, but there's 66 of these books. I don't even know where to begin looking, you know? Well, these study Bibles help you with that. So first of all, you do have to go to the table of contents, find the book of Romans, and then these study Bibles in the introduction before they actually give you the text of um, uh, the book, it will tell you in the introduction, what is the date of the writing of this letter or this document, this gospel, this Old Testament book? What is the date? Who is the author who wrote it? Who was he writing it to? Who is the audience? Can you see how this all might be important for understanding what you're reading? So who's the audience? What is the purpose 
of this being written. So there's an author on a particular date who's writing a particular audience. There must be a reason why this is being written. So what's the purpose? What's, what's the situation that's going on that needs to be addressed? What is the historical setting? What, is the, uh, what city or country? Who are the people? What ethnicity are they? What is the population? What's the economy like? What is the culture like? It'll tell you all of that with the historical setting. And then it'll tell you um, what are the key theological themes that you should look for in this book. So now you're being prepared to read and to read formationally and to read with comprehension. And then the introduction will give you an outline of the book. So you'll be able to understand before you even read it, you'll be able to kind of have an understanding of what the flow looks like of the book. So here's the introduction to the letter of Paul to the Romans, author and title, paragraph, date, paragraph, theme, paragraph, occasion, purpose, and background, historical setting, several paragraphs, but very helpful. You can, Stephanie can see that I have a lot of this uh, highlighted in here. And then you get to um, the outline, Oh, literary features. There's another one. There's literary features as well. So it helps you. It just helps you to be a smarter reader so that you can be formed by what you're reading. Then, in every study Bible, it's not just that they have an introduction to every book, but in every study Bible, um, there is also a running commentary below the text of, the, of what the Bible is saying. So in the book of Romans, the first page, uh, there's only eight verses of Romans, because more than half of the page is filled with some commentary below that helps you to understand more about what's going on in the verse. Very, very helpful. And you have that throughout the rest of the book. And all of that can be really helpful. It's not that you read a verse and then go down and see what the commentary says, but you read and you read and you read. And then if there's a question, if you're like, I don't really get what's going on here, I don't understand what's happening here, you can look down at the commentary and that will help you understand. It's not that you have to read the commentary. The commentary is there to help you if you need help with understanding. By the way, one other uh, little tool that would be helpful, I think, for anybody is uh, there's a one-volume Bible commentary for all 66 books of the Bible called the New Bible Commentary. Do you want to take a picture of this, maybe? Who's got the camera? So we can put it up there. So this, this, is, uh, this commentary is put together by Gordon Wenham, uh, J.A. Meyer, D.A. Carson, and R.T. France, some of the greatest scholars of our day. Um, and it's very readable. So here you go. Uh, Jackie has one of these of her own. And so when she's reading the Bible, she's got this right next to her. And if she's, she, sometimes she opens it, sometimes she doesn't. But sometimes she'll open it because she'll want to see what the, these guys have to say about a text she's reading that'll help clear things up. Very, very helpful. You know, I, I know, you know, pastors somewhat unfortunately like to have these offices lined with shelves of books and they like to make you think that they've read them all and they haven't. Um, but it looks impressive, okay? And so it also, I think, um, implicitly tells somebody who's not a pastor, you really don't know what you're doing when you're reading the Bible. And that's just too bad. That's just wrong. 
you get a good study Bible and maybe this one volume commentary, you're set to go. That's all you need, okay? And you're gonna have some fun with that. All right, I know somebody's like, really, fun? Okay. Now, just as an example, I wanna read through some passages and just give you some little hints or insight. I'm not gonna teach the passages and I'm gonna try to be careful not to teach them, but just kind of talk about them a little bit so you can kind of see what's going on in the text of these. And then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna close with uh, some communication theory that at first you may be wondering, where is this going? But it's gonna be really important for us to be able to understand, again, one of the challenges that we have in our culture today in America with reading the Bible with great understanding and true understanding. So anyway, let me just read through some uh, passages. Let me check time too. Usually we have that back thing on. Oh, wow. I got lots of time. I could read Psalm 119. Just kidding. All right, here we go. Psalm 73. You may be like, wow, that's 28 verses. That's a long psalm. Eh, it's about average, but listen to this, okay? Uh, somebody named Asaph wrote this psalm, we're told at the beginning of this. Now watch what happens in this psalm. And remember, a psalm is a song or a prayer. And at least half of the psalms, half of the 150 psalms, are actually songs and prayers of complaint. Complaining to God. I, I'm sure that nobody in the 21st century American church has ever complained to or about God. You just need to know that it's okay to pray in a way that wrestles. Because that's what the psalmists do in so many of them. So here's what he says. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Oh, man, this is going to be great. It's going to be uplifting. The next word, verse 2, but as for me. Now, just think about that. How often have you gone to church and you're walking around looking at everybody? They've got on their Sunday best face, playing around like their life is just perfect. And you're walking in there going, I got issues. I got problems. Why doesn't my life look like theirs? Their life looks like yours. They're just better at putting on a good face. You need this psalm, and so do they. Because Asaph is saying, I'm looking around. Seems like God is good to everybody except me. And here's his complaint. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps nearly slipped. Meaning, I... I'm not walking with God very well right now because I think he's not noticing me. For when I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. This is a culture where fat was sleek as opposed to skinny. Isn't that interesting? They didn't have Orange Theory and CrossFit back then, okay? They are not in trouble as others are. Can you hear the complaint? All these people are getting away with all this sin and they're not in trouble with God and I'm miserable and I'm holy and righteous. What's going on here? Nobody has ever felt like that today, right? Okay. Doesn't this identify with you? Can't you slow down and read this and go, man, that's me. I get it. He gets it. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken. Um, like 
the rest of mankind. Therefore, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how, they are saying, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? God has no idea that I'm getting away with all this sin. And you know that they're sinning. And you're like, where's God? Where's God? Why doesn't he know this stuff? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16, but, but. See, sometimes this is what wrestling, what grieving, what even complaining can do. It can lead you somewhere. It can lead you to the truth. It can lead you to a a, a realization. It can lead you to an, an epiphany. Verse 16, but when I saw how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He's saying, I know this isn't going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens. By the way, how they are destroyed in a moment. Isn't that interesting even right now? how quickly this switch has been flipped. I mean, two weeks ago, we thought we had problems. How badly would we like to return to those problems we had two weeks ago, right? How quick this happened, okay? How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You, God, hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. I have my salvation. I have my hope. I have my promise from God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. That would make a good praise song, wouldn't it? I think we have one like that anyway, okay? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. It's a comforting psalm. It's also a real psalm. It's, it's raw, you know? There's vulnerability there. There are no masks there. I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by people who, who just don't want to read the Psalms and then I find out they've actually never tried it before. Try it. I, I know the form, the literary form of them is, is off-putting to some of us. It's hard for us. But if you hang in there with it and pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this with you, it's amazing what you find in these Psalms. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're helpful. They're... It's like no book understands humanity more than the Psalms in the Bible. 
Here you go. I'm going to read out of Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. Nobody reads Leviticus. But I want you to hear this passage in Leviticus. And then think about, if you know anything about the New Testament, who might have had this on his mind when he was teaching his disciples? This passage right here out of Leviticus 19. This is God speaking to his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes in your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. If you have a vineyard, if you have a crop, if you have a harvest, you're blessed. Why not share? It's that simple, okay? Oh, then... The author of Leviticus writes this, quoting God, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. He keeps reminding his people that he's God and we're not. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. How many of you get paid a week after you've finished your work? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament, they're like saying, hey, at the end of the day, you should get paid. Well, Mr. Employer, you're not being very biblical. Throw a little Leviticus 19 their way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying it's interesting. Okay. Verse 14, you should not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, why would God feel the need to say that? Why, why would he say, don't curse the deaf? In other words, don't mock the deaf by talking to them as if they can hear you when you know they can't, okay? And do not put a stumbling block before the... Why would he feel the need to do that? Did you know? Okay, here you go. There was no Netflix back then. There were no video games, People used to entertain themselves by taking the, the physically challenged in their culture, in their society, and they would trick them. They would put stumbling blocks before the blind and then laugh at them. They would curse the blind, and God is saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. My people are not going to do that. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. In other words, don't, don't be a judge who only rules in favor of the poor regardless of the facts or only rules in favor of the rich because you want to pad your own status, okay? You need to be impartial. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. And then here you go, wrapping up this little section. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Who also said, love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus. When, when, when they... When they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Think about this. See, this is, the, this is the beauty of reading the Old Testament and becoming familiar with the Old Testament. When they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, here you go. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You understand that everybody in his audience, everybody in his audience understood that when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting, he's saying, do everything that Leviticus 19 says. Everything. Because they understood context. They understood the text behind the text. They understood that. And I know that takes some time. That takes some deep reading. That takes some contemplation, some meditation. That takes some Bible study. But when, you're, when you finally start to get to that idea of text behind the text, man, it just unlocks beauty and excitement for you. But you got to start diving in and you've got to slow down. Dive in and slow down. Here you go. Two more. Ephesians chapter four. So this is that skin disease letter that Paul wrote. I'm kidding. It's the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He's in prison when he writes it. And it's a beautiful letter. We get a lot of our um, Christology, which is the study of Christ from this letter. And we also get um, a lot of our understanding of what you might call Reformed theology from this letter, especially in the first three chapters. One of the simple, basic things to understand about the way Paul writes his letters, this is really basic and simple, but it's helpful to know, is that generally speaking, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, generally speaking, the first half or 60% of his letters is all doctrine. It's all teaching. It's, it's, it's the gospel. We're sinners. Jesus died for us. He's laying out the gospel truths. And then he gets to a point in the letter where he says, therefore, and that, the reason he says that is because, therefore, because all of this is true, the gospel is true, now live your life this way. So the rest of the letter is the application part of the letter. Because the gospel is true, you should live this way. Uh, for instance, in um, the beginning of chapter four, chapter four is where Paul ends the doctrine presentation and starts the application presentation. He says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he's literally a prisoner in Rome. This is a double entendre. And he says he's a prisoner of Jesus because Jesus died for him and he owes his life to him. So double entendre. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So you know that now he's starting the application. He says, now, because this is all true, this is the way your life is supposed to look. And then he just gives us all this application, the rest of the letter. Um, in Latin, the second half of Paul's letters are called praxis, which means uh, practice or practical application. And I love telling that because the first name of our church was what? Praxis. Justin Anderson named his church when he planted it Praxis because he wanted to be a church that was known for applying gospel truths to our lives and therefore loving our neighbors. That was the vision of our, our founding pastor, Justin Anderson. So knowing those little things, I think it's just helpful. So he goes into all of this application in chapters four, five, and six, but there's this famous paragraph at the end of chapter four that so many people love to teach out of. And it's that paragraph where, where Paul says, okay, quit doing this, but that's not enough. Now start doing this. And this is part of the application. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Just think about that one verse right there. The original creation mandate in Genesis 1 and 2 was that God gave us all of this creation so that we could make stuff, we could be creators ourselves so that we could bless others. Paul's just repeating that that creation mandate, that cultural mandate right there in that verse. It's a beautiful thing. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's a beautiful promise for us, by the way. Once you're in Christ, you can't be out of Christ, no matter what. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If you just slow down and think about this, that, that's, just, that's not just like reading a list. There's some, there's some deep stuff in there that you can think about and apply to your life. Here's the last one. Uh, this is a parable. So parable. Uh, Jesus, depending on how you count them, uh, Jesus taught in, uh, an awful lot. He taught a lot in parables. Uh, there are 32 to 34 parables in the New Testament. Uh, and he loved to use these. They're like sermon illustrations today, what we would call, pastors would call sermon illustrations. But a parable specifically, here's the way a parable works. It's a, a worldly example of a spiritual truth. So he's giving you a worldly situation in order to communicate a spiritual truth. And this parable of the sower does an amazing job of that. You want to talk about salvation? You want to talk about who's saved? You want to talk about what salvation actually looks like? Looks like You want to talk about the, the longevity of true salvation? The parable of the sower. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. Right there, you should, if you're slowly reading and reading for me, why would, why would the teacher sit down? No teacher sits down now. Well, that's the way they used to do it back in the first century. See, understanding where they're coming from first is so helpful, okay? So he sat down and he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, it's interesting that right after this, the disciples went to Jesus privately and said, what in the world was that? What are you talking about? And this is one of the parables. He doesn't do this with all the parables. This is one of the parables where Jesus actually explains it later to his disciples. But he also, in the midst of that, he says, listen, God's going to give some people ears to hear and others he's not. Wow. But even those he gives the ears to to hear have to work at it a little bit. You've got to slow down. And I would argue, 
A lot of people make fun of the disciples because they go and they ask him, what does this mean? That's what we should be doing when we don't understand. The disciples are wrestling. That's the whole point. They went to Jesus and they said, what's going on here? They went to the teacher. They said, what's going on here? So in verse 18, he says, hear the parable of the sower. Sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the first seed that was sown along the path. As for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. We've all seen people like this. And yet has no root in himself, but but endures for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That happens a lot in the church. Man, as long as things are going well, I'm going to church. And then the minute things kind of go south, I'm giving up on church. And that's exactly when you need the church, when you need the community, when you need God's word, when you need the gospel, when you need the the faith of the people around you, seeing together, helping each other. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world. And it proves unfruitful. In other words, this person knows Jesus but doesn't know him well enough to put his faith and trust in Jesus. He or she is still putting his faith and trust in the things of this world. As for what is sown on the good soul, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold. In another case, 60. In another, 30. I've had people ask me, so of the four seeds... uh, are two of them Christians? Are three of them Christians? How many are Christians? Clearly, with Jesus' explanation here, there's only one. In other words, a lot of people can look like Christians, but they're not. Now, now here you go. If you just read real quickly through this and not, don't stop and ponder what it is that Jesus is trying to get across, you miss that point of, of opportunity for formation, to ruminate, to ask questions. Ask questions of the text. We should be asking questions of the text because that's how you find out what's going on in the text. What if I can't find an answer? I'll get to that in a few minutes. But before we get there, I want to do this little exercise on the whiteboard here. And we're going to start with some communication stuff. So bear with me on this because we're going to make a really important point towards the end of this. But you have to understand this model of communication first. And what's going on, especially in our culture, and has been for the last 50 or 60 years. So the basic model of communication looks like this. First of all, all communication is code, right? Language is a code. Gestures are a code. Me writing on this board is going to be a code. All communication has to be put into a code and sent through a channel in order to be received by somebody else. You follow that? I know this is really basic. It's COM 100 stuff, but it's important to understand, okay? So the person who is sending the message, we refer to them as the, this is tricky, sender. But we also refer to them because they're putting the message into code. They are the encoder. Follow? So they encode a message, they send the message along a channel, 
or channels. There's the message. Now here's what's really important to understand. The vast majority of communication takes place over more than one channel at a time. Okay? Right now, in this room, I'm communicating through three channels. I'm speaking language to you. I'm flailing my arms around, making eye contact, so nonverbal channel. And I'm also writing on this board. See that? By the way, the more channels, usually the clearer it is. I was alive when texting on a phone, on a cell phone, first became a thing. I remember I was hiking North Mountain when I got my first text. My phone made a sound that it had never made before. And it was blinking. The light was blinking. And so I opened it up, and it said, you have a text message. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. But I started pushing buttons, and up came this text message from Jimmy Dunn. And he's texting me a message. And so I'm a smart guy. About an hour and a half later, I figured out how to use the keys to send him. Okay, it was about 15 seconds later. I sent him a text message back, okay? But I also remember that whole evolution of text messaging, okay? Almost immediately, what happened with text messages? Have you ever sent a text message and it was thoroughly uh, misinterpreted and misunderstood by the person receiving it? Of course you have. You send something that's sarcastic and funny and they receive it as an insult. Because you cannot communicate sarcastic tone through a text. So what did we immediately start doing with text messages? Emoticons. So that we could give a person a clue as to whether or not we were kidding or mad. If we're yelling, we have to put it in all caps. You see that? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to take a one-channel communication process and make it into a two-channel communication process because we know that that's helpful, right? So then you get down here, and you have the receiver, I before E except after C. Um, and if you have the encoder down here, what do you have down here? Yes, thank you. See, you just got out of college, so that's why you know all this stuff. Okay, now, think about this. 7.8 billion people in the world. Now, obviously, you understand that if you only speak English and you're trying to communicate to somebody who only speaks Russian, you don't have the same codes. You're going to have trouble communicating, right? Okay. What we don't understand is that even if we're speaking the same language, 7.8 billion people in the world, there are 7.8 billion different codes of communication in this world. So, Greg, you're about my age, right? Okay. All right. So you're 74. Okay. We're, we're about the same. We're both white males, kind of urbanites, speaking English. You would think that you and I have exactly the same code. We have code similarities, but you and I also send and receive things way differently than, than the other one does. This is why we have so many misunderstandings. No two people have exactly the same code. So you can encode something and send it with one intention, and by the time it gets down here and is decoded and, and opened up, the message is opened up and meaning and interpretation is applied, they can have a completely different understanding and meaning down here, right? 
Now, I know you've never had this happen to you before, right? Of course you have. This happens all the time, right? Okay, so that's the problem. Communication is messy, all right? Of course, immediately making it even messier. The minute you start sending a message to somebody, they're sending you feedback. Not necessarily talking, but the way they're sitting, their posture, their eyes, their face. Maybe their face contorts when you start talking or something. Maybe they start smiling, whatever. But you're receiving feedback and you're trying to interpret that feedback using a different code than they have. You see how messy this gets? Okay. And then it gets even more messy. You got this stuff here called noise. So every communication event has noise. So there's external noise, two types of noise. External noise, like a few minutes ago it started raining and I lost half of you in the room when it started raining really hard because now you're listening to the rain. That's external noise, okay? Uh, sometimes a Harley Davidson goes by on Sunday morning when I'm preaching and suddenly nobody's listening to me, they're just listening to the Harley Davidson, right? Okay, that's external noise. But then there's internal noise, which is psychological noise. That's what's going on in your mind is you're attempting to listen or maybe not attempting to listen to the person who's speaking to you. Maybe you just found out your cat died and you have to go to class and listen to an instructor drone on about communication theory. You're not going to be listening too well. I've actually had students, uh, you, you get to know your students at Paradise Valley Community College. You get to know them. And I had a student one time, this happened a couple of times, I walked in and I could tell her countenance was way different than she normally was. So I sort of mosey over there in the least intimidating way that I can, and I go, hey, you all right? And she says, well, no. The guy that I've been with or dating or whatever for the last 18 months, he just broke up with me over a text message. Well, first of all, you know, I don't say this out loud, but I'm like, well, if the guy didn't have the courage to do it to you face to face it's a good thing you're rid of him but at any rate how well is she going to be able to listen in that class okay I often use this as an example in class I'll, I'll start to quote Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh and just watch the faces in the class because I know right there I lost half of them and I say I'm not really quoting them I'm just you see how the noise the internal noise gets in the way so you have all this going on culture is a part of it too Okay, so you have all this going on. Communication is messy. Trying to read the Bible. Think about how the Bible was encoded 3,500 to 2,000 years ago by people who didn't speak our language in continents that are not North America, in way different historical contexts and economies. Think about how it was encoded and how we have to try to figure that out today. And what do most of us do when we read the Bible? We decode it with our code. Think about that. That's why we have to slow down. That's why sometimes we got to study a little bit. So going on just a little bit more on this. If you were to have a, like a scale from the sender to the receiver. And right in the middle is 50% and 50%. Down here is 100%. 
and down here is 100%. Where on this scale do you think the interpretation and the authority for the interpretation and meaning of a communicative event is? Is it down here near the sender? Does the sender get to be in charge of how a communication event is interpreted and meaning is applied? Is it down here near the sender or is it down here near the receiver? Any thoughts on that? So Stephanie's the uh, gold star student in our class. She's saying it's over towards the receiver. Yeah, it's down here in our culture. United States is what's known as a receiver-oriented communication culture. Here's what that means in practical terms. Once you say something to somebody, you have lost control of the meaning of it. Have you experienced that in our culture? Have you ever tweeted something and it was received in a completely different way than you thought? Right? This is, this is one of the reasons why digital communication is such a problem, because it's permanent. Somebody takes a screenshot, and no matter how fast you delete it, it's over for you. That's why you've got to be careful with this stuff. Now, I'll tell a little story. I'm sorry if this offends some of you, but just to drive home this idea that it's a receiver-oriented culture, and once you've sent a, a, a message, doesn't matter what you think or how, how you explain it. Most people aren't going to change their mind. I was um, texting years ago with a friend of mine, who lives in um, Minnesota, he drives a, uh, uh, a soda truck for a living. And so he listens to a lot of uh, the Redemption podcasts as he's driving around. Anyway, we were texting back, or not texting, we were tweeting back and forth. And um, at the end of it, I just, I just tweeted, you know what, you are one SMF. And I sent the tweet. S-M-F, and he didn't answer. About 48 hours later, he texts me, and he says, hey, that last tweet a couple days ago, when you called me an S-M-F, what did you mean? And I said, um, what, what? I said, uh, I called you a social media freak. S-M-F, social media freak. <laughs> Okay, remember, I'm a pastor, and at the time I had 600 followers. He said, you really need to look up Urban Dictionary and look at what SMF means. <laughs> See that? No amount of explanation. Oh, really, Frank? Really? You told your friend he's a social media freak? Yeah, right. You thought nobody was going to know what you really thought of him, what you really meant. You see that? We're a receiver-oriented communication call. He actually thought to ask. Most people wouldn't, right? Okay, so how do we get here? Okay, well, now it gets into how we interpret the Bible and how we understand the Bible. And this is so important. A little bit scholarly, but man, it'll open your eyes, okay? There's a guy named Stanley Fish. Real name. That's quite a last name, isn't it? Anyway, anybody heard of Stanley Fish? Anybody ever heard of this guy? Pretty famous guy. Okay, so in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, he was at um, various colleges, including uh, University of Chicago, 
uh, I think Berkeley, the, the longest tenure, I believe, though, the, where I got to know him best was when he was a literature professor at Johns Hopkins University. And he became a famous literature professor at Johns Hopkins University. And in the uh, 70s, he started writing, 60s and 70s, he started writing essays about how a text, so let's say they're reading Shakespeare or Chaucer or whoever, uh, Aristotle, a text has no meaning until somebody reads the text and interprets it for themselves in their own context. So he used to say all the time in class, this class has no text. They have their books there that they're supposed to read, but he says, this class has no text. It was his way of letting his students know that text has no authority on its own. None. The only time that text takes on life is when somebody reads it and applies meaning to it in their own context through their lens of interpretation. Now, naturally, you would think people would ask, and some students did. I would hope that somebody in here would ask the same thing. What about the author? What about what the author was trying to communicate? Doesn't the author have a say as to what his text or her text means? Fish would say, no, doesn't. And the reason, he says, is because you can't really know what was going on in the author's mind when they wrote that. You can't, you can't go and talk to William Shakespeare and say, what did you really mean by this? You can't talk to Aristotle. You can only understand it through your lens, through your positionality. So he would say there is no authorial intent in a text, author or authority, no authorial intent in a text. And this became known as, and it's very famous, reader response theory. I've studied it, especially when I was at ASU years ago, I studied this a lot um, and actually gave presentations on it. And when you read his stuff, you know, he's pretty convincing. He's a pretty smart guy. But there are flaws, of course, with his theory. It's internally inconsistent in some areas. And, of course, I always wanted to take his class and tell him that um, his syllabus had no meaning until I read it and interpreted it for myself. wonder how he would take that. Of course, he'd say, well, you can talk to the author of the syllabus. Okay. But here's the problem. Um, people started adapting this in regular communication over time. And that's what we started to do. But even more important, think about this. Think about what's happened in the United States the last 50 or 60 years. So every four years we elect a new president or we reelect one, depending. And the, a large portion of the electorate will vote for president based on one single issue and one single issue alone. And that is, who are they going to appoint to the Supreme Court as justices? Right? A lot of people vote. That's the only thing. that They don't care about uh, foreign policy. They don't care about economic policy. They don't care about pandemic policy. They don't care about any of these policies. All they care about is what kind of justices are they going to appoint. And over the last 40 or 50 years, what we've seen is that Democrat, Democratic presidents tend to appoint justices 
who read the Constitution using reader response theory. So, now, some people say, you're oversimplifying. Not really, okay? So, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, all of them, they're not interested, really, in what the original framers of the Constitution had to say. They're only interested in interpreting the Constitution in our context today and what it means to us. Okay? But you get to guys like Clarence Thomas and John Roberts, um, the late Anton Scalia, those guys did something, they were called strict constructionists, that's one word that you've maybe heard, um, but they also use this, it's, it's called historical, grammatical interpretation. So, if you were to describe the job of the, of the Supreme Court of the United States in one sentence, essentially you could say it this way. Their job is to interpret the Constitution in light of the case that's in front of them. So now you have some justices reading the Constitution using this approach, historical grammatical interpretation. What did the authors of the Constitution intend and mean when they wrote this? And how might that apply today uh, keeping the spirit of what they wanted intact as much as possible. And you have other justices down here saying, doesn't matter what they intended, we need to uh, apply it, interpret it and apply it in our context today the way we think it works best for us today. So if you think that this stuff isn't important, but you vote, it's important to you. So what, you're, what does this have to do with reading the Bible? By the time I got to seminary in the 90s, this had become a methodology that a lot of people were using to interpret the Bible and teach the Bible. We were giving up, not me. I was brought up in the faith by a guy named Tom Schrader who would never go for this. But we were giving up on the idea of studying really hard who Paul is and what's his historical context. And what does, he, what does he mean when he says something? Instead, we're just opening the Bible, reading it, and saying things like this. Well, here's what it means, what? To me. Here's what it means to me. Well, once you start doing that, you can get the Bible to say anything you want, and you no longer have to wrestle with it. You following the flow now? I told you we'd eventually get back to this. This is why I'm advocating all night long tonight, for slowing down, being patient, and being willing to say, you know what, I'm going to be an expert on Romans chapter 12 instead of being marginally familiar with the entire New Testament. For the next year, I'm going to study Romans 12, and I'm going to know Romans 12. You know what, that's not a bad idea. Now, I know some people are like, I'm going to go through the Bible in a year. That's great. I've done that too. And that can be really helpful. But if, and I know this has happened to some people, I did go through the Bible in a whole year. I still don't know what's going on. Wouldn't it be better to really know what's going on in some portion of it and really know it, as Trey suggested a few Sundays ago, and then move on to something else? I would advocate that that would be what you need to do. But that takes slowing down, that takes patience, that takes a willingness to 
Um, to do this not with your spare time, not with um, time that you have left over at the end of the day, but rather making it a priority the way some of us make it a priority to work out or run or, or read the news or whatever it is. Even if it's just 15 minutes a day, that's really good, okay? Here's the last thing I would say, and then I'll be done under time. That's amazing for Frank Switzer. All right, here you go. Unless some, some of you might have some questions. Here's the other thing, and this is hard and awkward for most people I know, but you should do it because it works. It works. You should find somebody to meet with once a week or once every other week for an hour and just read and discuss scripture together. I will tell you that going to those Bible studies where I had no idea where Ephesians was and I didn't understand, I couldn't follow these guys who were acting like everybody in the room knew everything about the Bible to begin with. I eventually started going to it's a long backstory. Some of you have heard it. I eventually started going about a year and a half into my faith journey to Tom Schrader's Bible studies. And it was a completely different experience. Because Tom would do exactly in his teaching what I'm advocating that we do in our reading. He would slow down and he would patiently take the time to explain author, date, context, historical setting, theological themes. He would explain all of that stuff so that you understood what's going on in the text and then he could bridge that gap from the text to us today and say, here's how it applies to you today. He taught that way and so after a while I began, I began asking Tom if he would just spend a little time with me just reading scripture with me and that really helped. And, and he was willing to do that with me. He couldn't do it with everybody, but for some reason he did it with me and some other guys. I do that now with some people. It's kind of like Tom taught me how to do that, now I'm doing it with other people and it helps them. There are millions of guys like me out there who would love to sit with you and read scripture with you and help and talk about it and unpack some of this stuff. But here you go. You actually, and for guys especially, this is hard, I know. You actually have to have the courage to say, hey, can we get a cup of coffee and maybe over the next eight weeks read through 1 John and talk about it? You have no idea how that will help grow you. And, 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 it's, and it's, it's not a sign of weakness to say that you need help reading the Bible. It's a sign of strength that you're willing to ask for help. Okay? Any questions? Anything? Thoughts or suggestions or anything? All right, let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and its truth. And I just pray that people would be formed by your word and not just grasp at it for information. Um, it's not important that we win Bible trivia. It's important that we know you. So help us to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.